over all the centuries of Rome's rise through wars, alliances, and unions of peoples to rule the Mediterranean world, no events were more destructive or more transformative than its rivalry with Carthage, the wealthy and powerful metropolis on the shores of North Africa. Three epic struggles between these two imperial cities tore through Sicily, Spain, Gaul, Italy, and Africa. They would see Rome engineer a navy to combat the Carthaginian sailors on the open seas and the trail of bloody victories won by Hannibal as he marched across the Alps and crushed the Romans in battle after battle. And in the end, majestic Carthage would burn to cinders under a full-scale assault by Rome, a sight that made even the Roman commander weep as a haunting vision of his own city's possible destiny flashed before his eyes. The reasons Rome and Carthage became locked in war are many. Imperial ambitions, fears of a powerful rival, and exaggerated charges of militant aggression color the pages of the ancient historians. But in the world of Roman myth, another tale is told, one reaching further back even than the foundations of Rome itself. A story of a heroic Trojan prince and a resplendent queen, both the founders of mighty cities. A story of friendship, then love, but in the end, heartbreak, death, and a curse that would trap two nations into a grim destiny of fire and blood. The story begins with another grand capital brought to ruins and its people massacred. The devastation of Troy by the invading Greek army, its invincible walls breached by the deception of the Trojan horse. While the battle was still raging in the city of Troy, the Trojan prince Aeneas had struggled on to fight to his dying breath, knowing full well that the fate of his city was sealed. A ghostly vision of Hector, the great champion of Troy before his death at the Greek Achilles' hands, had warned him to escape, and his divine mother, the goddess Venus, had revealed that the death of his city was inevitable and unchangeable in the gods' design. Aeneas had witnessed the elderly king of Troy, the gentle Priam, slaughtered in his palace. With no strength left to fight, the hero returned to his home and gathered his son, his father, and his wife to escape the city with him and seek safety in the distant hills. And so they rushed through the burning maze of streets heading out of the city, Aeneas bearing his aged father on his back and leading his young son by the hand. But his wife, following from afar, was lost in the commotion, and only too late did the fearful husband realize she was gone. Searching in vain, he would never see her alive again, but only her spirit appeared before him to console her grieving husband and hint at a glorious destiny that awaited him by the god's own plan. Through flowing tears, Aeneas escaped the city with father and son, bereft of his dear wife, and survived to watch his homeland crumble into ruins. Aeneas's family rejoined other survivors, and together they prepared to set sail in search of a new land. 
the refugee Trojans built themselves a small fleet of ships to bear their people away to a new life. And when the work was finished, they sorrowfully departed the shores of Trojan land. Their voyage was long, trying, and full of danger. Guided by mysterious oracles from the gods, they endured frustration at every turn, as no land seemed fit and safe for them to resettle a new Troy. They journeyed further west, but soon after they had sailed from the island of Sicily, a new threat raised its head. High in the heavens, the queenly goddess Juno beheld their fleet, and fire lit up her vengeful eyes. Her hatred of the Trojans was unyielding, since even before the Great War, when she supported the Greeks. In her deep rage, the Queen of Heaven had the roaring winds unleashed across the sea, bringing about a cataclysmic storm to sink the nation of Troy forever. The storm winds rushed together, and the waves of the sea rolled high as mountains. Thunder crashed, and lightning flashed across the black sky covered with thick clouds. Aeneas and the Trojan people called upon the gods in terror, looking death in the face. Some of their ships were lost in the sea, others shattered by the gales. But the gods did intervene. The sea lord Neptune rose above the waters, and like a steady leader urging calm amid a raging mob, he brought the winds to heal, and ended their thrashing of the seas. So it was that Aeneas and his companions made for the nearest land in haste, and the land they found was Africa. They drew their ships to the shore and shambled onto the beach, where they spent the night in grief for their lost comrades, afraid for their fate and the fate of Troy. But all the while, the will of the gods was at work, and Jupiter, the king of all the Olympians, had grand plans for Aeneas. These refugee Trojans would survive to reach their promised land of Italy, and there Aeneas and his people would build a mighty new community neighboring the tribe of the Latins. Over the generations, as the years would glide by, a dynasty of kings from Aeneas's bloodline would rule in Italy, until two descendants, foretold as Romulus and Remus, would create a new city that would rise to supreme power over the world, the city of Rome. This was the plan of Jupiter, decreed by fate. Aeneas and the Trojans would be the forefathers of the great Roman Empire. This glorious destiny now seemed far away, as the refugees lay huddled and tearful on the wave-beaten shores of Libya. But no challenge would shake the imperial vision of Jupiter. Not far from where the Trojan ships had landed was another city with a famous destiny, still busily under construction by the settlers who worked together to raise their young nation, the nation of Carthage. When the hero Aeneas rose the next morning, he and his trusted comrade Achates set out to explore further inland. And as he journeyed, soon he learned more about this land and its ruler, when his divine mother Venus appeared in disguise as a maiden huntress to guide him on his way. 
And this is what the goddess revealed about the founder of this frontiered city, the renowned and beautiful queen Dido, and the new country she had made. The people of Carthage were Phoenician in their blood, having set sail themselves as refugees and voyaged west to Africa's northern coast from the ancient city of Tyre. And, much as it had been for Aeneas, it was violence and sorrow that had caused Dido to lead her people to safety in a foreign land. Dido had been married to Sicius, the richest man in all Phoenicia, and the two shared a deep love. Dido's brother Pygmalion sat upon the throne of Tyre, a cruel and greedy king, and he began to covet the vast wealth of his brother-in-law, Sicius. And so he murdered Dido's dear husband and hid his crime from her in hopes that he would gain his victim's gold. But fate had other plans, and in the dead of night, as the faithful Dido lay in deep sadness, the ghost of Sicius appeared to her. He showed her the evil wounds that had ended his life, exposed Pygmalion as his killer, and told her where he had hidden his treasures. He warned his wife to find and secure his wealth, then right away prepare to leave her homeland of Tyre, to escape the clutches of the wicked brother who would surely murder her too. And so Dido gathered many of the Tyrian nobles and loyal friends, and with them she set out across the sea. And the Tyrian settlers landed on this Libyan coast, where now she had raised up a mighty city to rule over as queen. And Carthage was its name. The goddess departed, leaving Aeneas and Achates to trek onward toward the walls of the city. But with her divine magic, she shielded them both in a thick mist, so no one would see them as they walked as strangers, invisible, through the bustling streets. The Trojan prince marveled at the young city's size and splendor, and at Dido's people who busied themselves like bees. Some rolled great stones to fortify the walls, or marked the boundaries of houses. Others dug harbors, or sculpted the walls of spacious theaters. The sight made him burn all the more for his people's own walls to rise, the walls of a new Troy. In the center of the city was a thickly wooded area, where Dido was erecting a grand temple in honor of Juno, gleaming with roofs and doors of polished bronze. And before Aeneas's eyes, holding court on the temple steps, there was Dido herself, fair as the goddess Diana, noble and radiant among her court. Transfixed, the Trojan hero stood in awe of the stately queen as she dispensed justice and directed her people's efforts on the new city. In Carthage's queen, the prince saw much to admire, even much to envy, as if he saw a vision of his own future as the founder of a great nation. Then suddenly, in the same city square, another sight lifted Aeneas's heart as he beheld a company of men arrive in haste before Dido's court. Among these warriors were Trojan comrades feared dead in the storm, whose ships had been lost in the waves. Aeneas gave silent thanks that they had somehow safely come to shore and now sought Carthage's aid 
as he did. One of these survivors was the Trojan's diplomat Ilioneus, who stepped forward to speak their request with well-measured words, unsure of their reception in an unfamiliar city. He was given leave to speak, and so addressed the queen with due deference. Your Majesty, whom the gods have granted to raise this magnificent city, we are men of Troy, whom terrible storms have driven to your borders. We beseech you to spare our ships and save a people who have suffered long on the perilous seas. There is a land in the west called Italy. This is where we journey, as the gods have commanded us. We had a leader with us, the mighty hero Aeneas, but we don't know now whether he is alive or buried beneath the waves. Ilioneus ended his plea and drew back among the Trojans. Upon her throne on the temple steps, Dido observed the men for a moment, then rose from her seat. Her face was cautious, even shrewd, the face of one who had learned not to be too trusting. But amid this was also a deep kindness, and it was with a gentle expression that she made her answer. Fear not, brave men of Troy. Be assured that I will help you and protect you. I know well the people of Troy and the sad events that have led you here. If you wish to voyage on to Italy, my ships will escort you. Or if you wish, you may join us here in this land and add your strength to our home of Carthage. Trojans and Tyrians alike shall be equal in my sight and live together here in peace. If only Aeneas were here, and I could welcome him too. I will send messengers throughout this land to scour the shores and seek him, in hopes he's still among the living. Watching and listening from their invisible mist, Aeneas and Achates rejoiced in their hearts to hear the fair queen's generous words. Aeneas could restrain himself no longer, and he stepped forth, the cloud parting way as he did. The Trojan prince stood nobly before the queen, with the handsome radiance of a god, and the gaze of Aeneas and Dido met for the first time. Dido took a step forward down the temple steps toward the hero, awestruck by his appearance. And Aeneas, his heart filled with gratitude, said to her, Mighty and beautiful queen, I am the one you asked for, Aeneas of Troy. You have saved my people, and no words can give you proper thanks. For as long as the rivers run to the seas, and the shadows fall on the hills, your name and glory will endure for this kindness you've shown to the poor strangers cast upon your shore. Then Dido, after a short silence, graciously replied to the prince, I too have wandered far, just like you and your Trojans. I know what it is to lose a home, and all you love. But because I've suffered, I've learned to help and care for those who suffer. So come, all of you, to my palace, rest yourselves, and be at home. This meeting is a cause for thanks and celebration for both our peoples. 
With that, she led Aeneas to her royal hall and sent generous provisions to his companions who remained at the ships. And that night, in her palace, a sumptuous feast was served to mark the bonds between the two nations of Carthage and Troy. The tables were weighted with gold and silver vessels, and the rooms were adorned with luxurious couches draped with costly purple, the trademark purple dye that made the city of Tyre famous around the world. Dido presided over the banquet in resplendent robes, sparkling with precious gems. An exchange of gifts was made, speeches were recited, and songs were sung. And all the while, Dido and Aeneas grew more familiar. The queen hung upon every word of the handsome hero's tale as he recited the events that had brought them to Africa. The founder of Carthage and the destined forefather of Rome each discovered a kindred soul that night. Both leaders devoted to the care of their people, both bereft of a homeland, both widowed by the untimely death of a beloved spouse. The hero and the queen, even now, began to feel the stirrings of love for one another, a spark that would grow into a rolling fire and a fateful passion that would one day consume them both.